0: pollution. It's a common term in everyone's vocabulary due to the rise of the environmental movement in the 1960s and 70s. We say this term as if there was a solution to pollution. Well, let's discuss the dark reality of pollution and why politicians avoid discussing the details altogether. This is The Green Conversation, and I'm your host, Leo Jenko. Fair note, I am going to criticize the Democrats a lot in this episode, but this does not mean Republicans have environmental issues at the forefront of their minds, or a grasp on the issue as well. Democrats have deemed themselves, though, the herald of environmental advocacy, so Democrats should be more informed when it comes to the relationship between humans and nature. What really spurred this conversation was the East Palestine-Ohio train derailment. This was one of the few times we saw environmental news last for more than a week. The confusion around surrounding the situation was the icing on the cake that led both conservative and liberal legacy media to address the story. I believe both sides of media hoped the story would eventually unravel a story that would fit their politics. I believe it was the locals who truly kept this story going, showing the negligence of both corporation and government. From the New York Times, the CNN, news about the residents' concerns for the health plagued our feeds. It was shocking to see how liberal-leaning media carefully discussed the concerns for the residents without insulting the, quote, experts, unquote, within the EPA. Let me read you an excerpt from a CNN article by Brenda Goodman. Quote, Since February 8th, when the burning rail cars were finally extinguished, The state and federal officials have consistently told East Palestine residents that they have not detected any chemicals linked to the derailment in air or drinking water at levels that would threaten human health. Yet, people living in East Palestine and the surrounding area have continued to share stories about unexplained symptoms like headaches, sore throats, nasal congestion, bloody noses, skin rashes, coughs, and eye irritation. End quote. The CDC acknowledged the incident to CNN after posts began circulating on social media saying the team from the CDC was sent home because they got sick. The official said it wasn't the case, though. But one article written by Mary Kakatos, I apologize if I just butchered that name, for the ABC News said this, quote, The incident also sparked environmental concerns, An estimated 3,500 fish, such as minnows, darters, and sculpin, have died in creeks and rivers around the area, according to the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. While many officials have said the town's water supply appears to be free of harmful levels of contamination, and I again, if I butcher this name, Cole Deep Sign, an assistant professor at the Earth Sciences at Kent State University, told ABC News that long-term testing needs to be done to ensure the water supply is safe. End quote. So, this incident alone exposed the complications and misunderstanding of pollution in accordance to the government. I know that sentence is a lot to take in, but how we handle and address the dangers of pollution is rooted in, well, two things. Physics and language. Pollution is defined by the EPA as any substance in water, soil, or air that degrades the natural quality of the environment, offend the senses of sight, taste, or smell, or cause a health hazard. The usefulness of the natural resource is usually impaired by the presence of pollutants and contaminants. But the idea of pollution has grown over the years. The idea of pollution has bounced around our legal system for the majority of our history. There was a great paper written about the history of the term pollution in our legal system from John N. Matthews, a professor at Notre Dame Law School. He traced the word polluted or pollution back to biblical times, used to describe the poisoning of an entity or idea. Think of the family or country. The terms weren't really legally used within the United States of America until a court case in 1832 which referenced water quality shortly after a case in 1849 applied pollution to air quality however there were anomalies according to dr adam rome a professor now at the university of buffalo argued that the term pollution in regards to human degradation of the environment was not recognized until after the civil war it was other words that were used to describe the health of natural resources such as contaminated tainted fouled and and much more a legal application of the word pollution did not appear until 1924 in an act called the oil pollution act of 1924 but the connotation that we know it today was formed in the 60s and 70s so pollution was not initially an interest in our government until issues arose while we have this development of the word pollution we still see issues around defining and handling pollution. To be honest, we shouldn't be surprised by this, because I'm still baffled by the amount of pollution that goes unreported. Mid-2023, this year, there were numerous articles addressing polluted faucet water. Apparently, there were still alarming levels of substances. No idea how to pronounce it, but we all know it as PFAS or those forever chemicals. They are basically synthetic chemicals that were released into the environment. And since they are synthetic, the half-life of these chemicals are pretty long. These chemicals can linger in the environment and water for a good century. Earlier in 2023, though, news broke out that the government agencies found an abnormal amount of PFAS through our water. According to CNN, quote, in June Based on the latest science, the EPA issued health advisories that said the chemicals were much more hazardous to human health than scientists originally thought, and are probably more dangerous even at levels thousands of times lower than previously believed. End quote. Further on in the article, it reads, A 2019 study suggests that the PFAS chemicals can be found in 98% of the U.S. population The chemicals can primarily settle in the blood, kidney, and liver, and exposure can lead to serious health problems like cancer, obesity, thyroid disease, high cholesterol, decreased fertility, liver damage, and hormone suppression, according to the EPA. According to CNN, this chemical is everywhere, and studies have supported this claim. The FDA has phased out certain chemicals, while others still remain, though. In addition, another chemical that replaced these chemicals was Gen X, which is now also deemed problematic by the EPA. But the real issue is not pollution, no, the real issue is how we respond to this pollution. When we define a term, we limit our application of that term. Some chemicals will not be deemed a pollutant or dangerous by the EPA. It won't be until damage has been received when the EPA would change the definition and expand the definition of pollution. Don't get me wrong, this is just language at its best. Language will expand based on discovery, but only by discovery. We are material beings. We base a lot of natural and hard sciences on the material world. Unless we observe it, we do not recognize it. If we cannot recognize it, we cannot define it. Since we cannot define a dangerous chemical, we cannot diagnose the chemical as the source of the problem. We need a hard, jarring event or situation to see the connection. So if our understanding of pollution is dictated by language, it should be easier to make policy to address pollution, right? Well, let's talk about the policies under the EPA. How are we responding to pollution? Well, the media has somewhat an understanding, but for most part they don't. For example, Fox published an article saying, quote, given our underdeveloped knowledge of the pollutant and the EPA continues to update its guidelines on the PM2.5 regularly, earlier this year, the agency tightened its maximum allowable concentration of PM2.5 micrograms per cubic meter in the ambient air from 12 micrograms to between 9 and 10 micrograms. The agency estimates this change could save up to 4,200 lives annually. Legislative action saved America's air quality in the past, and today policies exist that we know could help combat PM2.5 emissions. For example, prescribed burns community-based fire management and fuel reduction are all techniques already used by forest management professionals to reduce the severity and risk of PM2.5, causing wildfires. And in 2019, the Environmental Law Institute published Durmbach's and co-author Michael Gerard's Guide on Decarbonizing the U.S., which identifies more than 1,000 legal routes addressing climate change's effects. End quote. The main problem with the media, like Fox, is that they do not highlight how pollution is regulated from the beginning. That snippet of Vox was far down the article after a lengthy description of the problem. So while media does at least recognize how pollution is handled, they do a horrible job educating readers and leading them on. I mean, that was probably confusing to listen to early on, because you got PM 2.5, you have these lengthy sentences, it can get confusing. What they want to do is they want to captivate you with a doomsday event, and then break down complicated government regulations as if it was easy to change or understand. So what's the real deal? Well, legislation and government agencies create multiple policies both from the Democrat to the Republican side of the aisle. But the policies ultimately lean more conservative in nature, though not fully hard-right pro-business conservative. Polluting is technically not a criminal act. It is only criminal when pollution is excessive, or what we deem as excessive. For instance, carbon monoxide, not to be confused with carbon dioxide, can be emitted into the air depending on the time of release of the chemical, A one-hour period of release is only acceptable if the release of the CO does not exceed 30 parts per million by volume. And I understand per million by volume is confusing. So to get an idea of what parts per million is, one part per million is equivalent to one milligram of something per liter of water. It is a weight and volume measurement basically, but for air, however this threshold changes If the chemical is released during an 8-hour period, the level of chemical allowed to be released is decreased to 9 parts per million. You may be thinking, then, what other chemicals are regulated to be released into the air? There are six main pollutants that are addressed by the Clean Air Act. These chemicals are carbon monoxide, lead, sulfur dioxide, nitrogen dioxide, ozone or trioxide, and particle matter. So that's just air. If we want to look at water, there are over 100 chemicals that are regulated when polluting water. Some chemicals on the list shock people. Some chemicals you think are safe are not when they're excessively polluted into our water systems. But just like with air, there is a degree to the amount of pollutants you can release into the water. For example, the chemical zinc. If we were using a water system for the consumption of water and organisms, say drinking water and eating fish, the threshold for zinc is 7,400 milligrams per liter. This though jumps up to 26,000 milligrams per liter if you are consuming an organism from a water source. I'm saying regulated here. This term has a different meaning when it comes to legal writing. Regulated is not a word used for penal law. Penal law is straightforward in that it tells us the boundary of our behavior. Regulated means the act is not black and white. The behavior can have multiple degrees of legality, unlike murder and burglary. <laughs> There are various reasons why pollution is regulated and not outlawed. The first and more obvious explanation is business lobbying against pollution regulations. Why are businesses, though, so invested in lobbying against pollution regulation or legislating pollution as a criminal offense in the first place? That answer is complicated. There are two sides to the story, and your political affiliation may heavily influence which side you believe has more weight. The first side is businesses are greedy. They don't want to change their production line or lose profit. Dr. Christine Meisner-Rosen, again, I apologize for butchering all the names in this episode, she published an article in 1995 in the Business History Review around businesses and their counter-efforts to pollution regulation. Quote, Because of the economic character of pollution, it was not in the obvious immediate economic self-interest of Chicago's businessmen to do anything of this ether to organize the society for the prevention of smoke or voluntarily to abate their pollution. Economics called pollution an externality or social cost problem. Chicago's polluters externalized a cost of production by shifting it to bystanders who paid the externality cost when they suffered through the inconvenience damage and extra expenditures resulting from pollution. End quote. According to this article, companies denied pollution regulation in two ways. That it was more expensive to handle pollution, or that the, the technology to reduce the pollution was technically difficult to make. According to the article, these reasons were given because the main goal was to protect the profit of these companies. However, businesses no longer fear these technologies as much or to lose profit because they invest across multiple industries. Thus, they can start dealing and getting their hands involved with legislation to regulate pollution because their overall pocket won't be affected as drastically. Dr. Graham K. Wilson in the Political Quarterly wrote about this muddled lobbying relationship with businesses. Wilson noted that while companies were divided, industries like the automobile industry still fear economic instability that would come from previous anti-pollution policies across states. So not all businesses who diverse their investments are going to like anti-pollution policies. One could argue that due to the messiness and constant change in politics, businesses have moved to policies that would attract investors under the guise of anti-pollution policies. Just look at carbon offset credits and the environmental, social, and governance scores. They look great at the beginning, but they ultimately do not sway businesses beyond simple behaviors. Instead of trying to win votes and policies, companies are now shifting to obtain investment, swaying to the political parties that would invest back into them more. They are not lobbying on Capitol Hill anymore. They are lobbying through wallets. It is a pretty smart strategy. However, the other side of the argument that I discussed is that we cannot produce without pollution. Everything we do will result in some sort of pollution. Even our bodies can produce waste that has the potential to pollute. The river running through London is a perfect example. It was called the Great Stink, a time when hot weather helped release the smells of human feces and industrial waste in the water running through London. Look it up, it's a great history story. So if we outright ban or force admission change too soon, this could result in profit loss and economic downturns. We saw this with electric vehicles in 2023 or just this year. After failing returns, companies like Ford are slowing down production. This counter-argument against the criminalization of pollution is simple. We cannot produce without waste. It is not physically and materially possible. And if we try to force this, we are going to hurt our economic production. And while people will scream to the heavens of socialism and redistribution of wealth, I really don't think they understand how throwing a wrench in the economic system and causing it to collapse, that wrench is going to cause hard times that I do not think they will see coming. Because if you destroy the system, there will be time, or you will need time, to rebuild it back up. can't just expect it to magically morph into socialism it's probably better to accept that what we produce will always have pollution. And if we take this approach, policies then would focus more on the issues of consumption, production, and how we make waste. Though this topic can take up a whole podcast, I just want to end it on this. Before we do that, before we even get into what policies we need to do to address our waste, it would be best to first accept accept that we create waste, no matter what we do, before we start to discuss how we should produce and the waste that follows. All right, thank you for listening to The Green Conversation. I know this was a short episode, but I will be back in two weeks with another episode. Y'all have a great day. just listen to the green conversation with leo if you would like to contribute to the podcast please visit leojenko.org and sign up to be a member of the community as a member you can get content all year long compared to public listeners you can also follow the podcast on twitter and instagram search for the green conversation music was produced by michael david mobley sound and scripts were produced in-house research to make this episode is cited in the episode description If you would like to make a one-time donation, please contact me for further details. Contact information is on the website. Look for the next episode in two weeks. See you then.